Listening to Energy 360 from the Energy and National Security Program at CSIS. I'm Sarah Ladislaw, your host. Today's podcast is the second of three episodes that focus on key trends we explored as part of our Energy Futures Forum, an annual workshop where we identify and explore issues that could significantly impact the energy sector over the next 10 years. Now, just to be clear, the Energy Futures Forum, we don't try to provide one outlook of the future, but instead we try to engage and challenge the energy community's thinking about how issues may evolve over a medium-term time frame and what those potential challenges might mean for energy policymaking and decision-making. One of the issues that we discovered this year was uh, blockchain. Uh, as digitalization and big data sweep through the economy, more and more people are looking for ways to use them to make their lives easier. In the energy sector, some argue that blockchain can help drive more efficiency in operations, lower transaction costs, and make our electricity system more distributed and democratic. Our guests this week are David Livingston, who's the Deputy Director for Climate and Advanced Energy at the Atlantic Council's Global Energy Center, and Varun Severam, who's the Philip R. Reed Fellow for Science and Technology at the Council on Foreign Relations and author of Taming the Sun, Innovations to Harness Solar Energy and Power the Planet. Thanks for joining me today, guys. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So together, you guys drafted the report on blockchain that was part of the Energy Futures Forum and served as the basis for our discussion. So let's start where you need to start in uh, every single blockchain discussion with a very basic question. Varun, what is a blockchain? Well, let me give you a, a simple structural answer to this, but I'll say up front, David's the blockchain guru here, so you can put some meat on these bones. Um, a blockchain, very simply stated, uh, is a way to record and verify transactions without requiring a central entity to maintain or validate that list of transactions, which we call a ledger. Now, the original and to date still most popular uh, implementation of the blockchain is for the cryptocurrency known as Bitcoin. Folks are able to trade Bitcoin over a peer-to-peer -peer network that computers around the world are connected to via the internet. And this decentralized network of computers is able to record and validate every single Bitcoin transaction. And they're able to make sure that nobody double spends Bitcoins. That way, every Bitcoin transaction is transparently recorded so everyone can see it. And that transaction is also immutable. That means that you can't change it once it gets recorded on the ledger. Finally, uh, Bitcoin transactions or any other transactions on the blockchain can be reasonably swift. And so that's another advantage in addition to transparency and immutability. Now, the blockchain has been used you know, most popularly for cryptocurrencies, but you can actually do a whole lot more with this blockchain idea. Instead of just recording transactions of currencies, you could also record any number of things. You could, for example, create a list or a registry of assets, or you can record transactions that don't have to do with cryptocurrency, but instead have to do with the trade of some other asset. For example, relevantly to this paper, you could record the trade of an asset such as electricity, units of electricity. So, so, so that's a very basic overview of what blockchain is. And it's clearly evolved a whole lot just in the last 10 years since it was invented. Okay, so you started down this road, Vern. What, how can blockchain be used in, say, the electric power sector, and then we can turn to oil and gas? Yeah, so in the electric power sector, there are a lot of fundamental kind of seismic shifts that are taking place. I'll name three of them and then explain why blockchain may provide as a partial solution. The three changes are, one, renewable energy is increasingly penetrating electric power grids around the world. You know, historically, utilities could count on 
fairly predictable, dispatchable, centralized generators. But nowadays, there's an increasing amount of wind and solar on the grid, and these sources are intermittent. They add volatility and unpredictability to an electric power system. The second trend is the rise of distributed energy sources and assets. These are, for example, customer-sided rooftop solar panels or batteries or fuel cells or microturbines or even your Nest thermostat that you program. All of these add complexity to the edge of the grid. And the third change to electric power systems is that there's an increasing digitalization of these systems. You know, in 2016, $47 billion was spent around the world on ICT, information communications technologies, to digitalize the grid. You put all these trends together and you see this tremendous complexity compared to the way we used to operate our grids, but also an opportunity because they're becoming more digital. And that's where blockchain comes in. Fundamentally, uh, David and I and, and, and you know, our, our two co-authors uh, for another paper we wrote for the Council on Foreign Relations, Madison Freeman and Max Feige, we believe that blockchain's uh, real potential in the electric power sector is to help to manage this increasingly complex and increasingly digital system because utilities can't do it in the way they historically have. A lot of people, when they talk about the electric power sector, get obsessed with one micro-application. This is the application where you have two people or 100 people who have rooftop solar panels, and they're able to trade electricity with one another in a peer-to-peer -peer network. It's intuitive. It kind of feels like Bitcoin. Instead of trading Bitcoins, what you're trading uh, are units of electricity. Uh, and, and it makes you feel good because everybody's installing rooftop solar panels. Well, let me tell you, that's actually the example we are least excited about. The examples we are most excited about in the electric power sector are cases not where you're totally upending or replacing the centralized electricity grid, but rather where you're enabling the entities that today play in this space to better manage that increasingly complex system. So I'll give you an example. Instead of this case of you know rooftop solar systems totally replacing centralized generation, we like the example where uh, in Europe, for example, the utility NL is spearheading the Enerchain project. And this is a way of making wholesale electricity markets where you uh, trade bulk amounts of electricity. This is a way of making those markets work much more efficiently. Because these wholesale markets involve the trade of large amounts of electricity and many numbers of trades, blockchain can enable this number of trades to be accomplished swiftly without friction and include a larger number of participants. For example, if you had uh, folks who have uh, sources of demand response, they're operating batteries, their factories, uh, their electric vehicles, this larger number of participants can actually participate in wholesale markets that have traditionally been walled off uh, from these participants. So you can improve the efficiency through swift and frictionless trading that's verified using a distributed network, and you can increase participation and make these markets work better. We like that sort of application, where you're empowering the existing system to just work better rather than throwing it all away. So that's really, I mean, so that's a good way of thinking about it, right? The, the electric power system is getting more complex, and there needs to be a system for managing that complexity in a much more efficient way so that the system can continue to sort of evolve in that direction. Is that similar, David, for the oil and gas industry or for transportation in general, or are there different applications in that sector? There's a, there's a, a similar driving force that I think is, is the one that, that most cuts across the electric power sector and oil and gas, let's say. And that's actually something uh, which I'll add on to, to the factors Varun mentioned. That's what policymakers are increasingly asking of the energy sector. 
Um, there was once upon a time when all we really cared about was the commodity itself and maybe what it cost. Um, and, and, and that was about it. Now we're starting to layer additional attributes that we care about, that policymakers are asking about. You might have, for example, a renewable portfolio standard in which you care not just about the electron and how much it costs and where it is, but you also care about was it generated from a solar panel? Was it generated from a wind turbine? Was it generated from a geothermal source, et cetera? Um, uh, you might care in the in the oil and gas sector, for example, about what's the carbon footprint of that barrel of oil? What was the methane leakage rate associated with that unit of natural gas? These are what we broadly call in our paper sustainability attributes or just energy attributes writ large. You might not care about that at all. To take a, to, to borrow an example from you know the mining sector, you might care about whether uh, a diamond or a, a bit of cobalt was produced uh, using child labor or not, um, whether it can be verified that it met certain labor standards or practices. And so all of these attributes don't necessarily exist in the material world, at least not in a concrete sense. They're a little bit abstracted, but they're increasingly important important in um, both in terms of policy structures that are demanding them, like renewable portfolio standards or a carbon price uh, or those sorts of things, or they're being demanded by consumers. So um, even if there's not a policy in place, for example, a utility might say, we'd like to market green natural gas to customers. We'd like to mar market natural gas that we can prove has 25% uh, or 30% lower methane emissions or, or broader greenhouse gas emissions than other comparable natural gas. Well, in order to do that, they're looking at blockchain-based uh, uh, platforms to record a, a number of different data inputs, including, let's say, readings from a traditional meter that's sitting on a natural gas well, um, uh, all sorts of information about pressure within pipes, uh, observed leakage rates, maybe information from drone flyovers or from, from individual sensors. And it takes all these different um, measurements from the real physical world and then runs a series of calculations or algorithms on them, imputes a, uh, an, uh, an, an imputed uh, greenhouse gas footprint and then associates that greenhouse gas footprint, let's say, with a unit of natural gas, maybe a million uh, cubic feet um, or whatever it might be, uh, and, and puts that onto the blockchain. So then that, uh, the, the sustainability attributes will sit with the underlying energy commodity as it changes hands between traders, goes into storage, goes into a pipeline here, a pipeline system there, and eventually gets purchased by, let's say, a utility or an in industrial customer. Um, that's one example of, of, of how sustainability attribution is providing an avenue for blockchain-based applications in, in the oil and gas sector. The other one, which is perhaps a little bit less sexy, a little bit less uh, uh, speculative, but might take, uh, take place faster or gain more traction uh, earlier on, is just um, record keeping. So, for example, in uh, let's look at the Fujaira storage terminal, uh, storage hub, oil storage hub, and product storage hub in the United Arab Emirates. Um, there, uh, the um, uh, uh, the authorities are implementing a blockchain-based record-keeping system that sees different storage terminal operators submit their uh, their storage levels and other relevant regulatory compliance data on the blockchain. So it's instantaneous, and any data which is entered is is immutably on that on that chain. If errors are made, it can of course be uh, 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 it can be appended later through a little note that gets added to the blockchain saying, "See blockchain BC X13." We actually made a little error there. It should be this. But you can never go back and tamper with the data. And under the 
existing system, before this blockchain-based system was implemented, much of this was done by hand. Much of the data had to be reconciled using uh, a lot of uh, uh, manual labor hours uh, by, by the regulatory authority there and by different terminal operators. And so this is just an instance of blockchain being implemented for a very unsexy reason of uh, improving compliance and improving transparency when it comes to oil markets or uh, information in oil markets like storage levels. So you just did something really useful there, which in the conversation we had about blockchain, there was two things I thought came out that were were helpful. One is blockchain absent digitalization in general is not all that it's cracked up to be, right? In and of itself, it needs the rest of this system of, you know, systems to really, you know, have some potential. And then two, that blockchains can be appended. And so there was a lot of folks that thought perhaps that, you know, that they are corruptible in a sense that because if you can't go back and fix something or something's wrong earlier on in the blockchain, that it's therefore not usable. And so I thought those were two kind of interesting things that came out from the conversation. How much do we know about um, how blockchain is being used in these uh, two industries uh, and, and how much of it is in the U.S. versus abroad? I know you guys have looked at this a bunch, too. So when we looked at this, the, we found a couple major trends. And I would encourage you to, to take a look at the, at the paper we wrote to dig deeper into the specific numbers. But by and large, uh, the big movers on blockchain are perhaps unsurprisingly the United States and Western Europe in terms of, number one, where we see the most startup activity, but number two, also where we see the most promising actual real uh, projects being implemented by incumbent players such as utilities or uh, international oil companies as well. Um, the, the reasons for this are obviously those, that's where the technology hubs are. Um, that's where you have Silicon Valley or the Berlin Tech Hub or uh, those sorts of things. But you also have, and this is particularly true in Western Europe, you have very open-minded regulatory authorities that are actually welcoming these developments and working hand-in-hand -hand with blockchain startups. So I'll just mention in the UK, um, Ofgem, the electricity uh, regulator there, is uh, implementing something that's calling a regulatory sandbox, where they're not giving special rules or handouts to blockchain-based startups, nor any other based startup uh, that, that has a, a new data platform it wants to introduce. But they are providing bespoke regulatory guidance, where um, a blockchain startup might look at the existing regulations and say, no one imagined blockchain when these were written. How on earth will my particular application or my particular process for validating a transaction or, or storing customer data, how will that be interpreted by the regulatory authority? This allows them to go to the regulator and say either here is exactly how it will be interpreted and now you have a, uh, a letter of determination from the regulator. Why is that important? Not just so that they don't get slapped on the wrist, but that allows them to go access capital where a bank might say, you need to show us this permission from the regulator or this clarity from the regulator before we will look at you know, offering equity or debt to, um, to your startup. Additionally, you, you have other instances in which um, regulators in, in the Austrian wholesale uh, market, for example, are working hand-in-hand -hand with some blockchain consortiums like the Energy Web Foundation, which spun out of the Rocky Mountain Institute, um, on looking at how this could uh, make easier cross-border or cross-market uh, electricity flows, which ultimately, to bring this back to the policy perspective again, is actually incredibly helpful prospectively towards the larger goals of things like the EU Energy Union. And, and, and I just want to go back, Sarah, to your earlier point and, and uh, provide some more color on how blockchain fits in with the rest of the digitalization landscape. 
It's not the case that blockchain is some kind of silver bullet um, that, that is your only digital solution that you need. In fact, blockchain is a very small part of, many, of solving many of the problems that we've been talking about. So, so I'll go back to managing electric grid complexity. Right? Blockchain can provide one of the digital solutions, uh, which is making it possible to swiftly and immutably and transparently record transactions. But many of the problems that we face aren't with how do we record the transactions. So one of the fundamental problems we face with the rise of distributed energy on electric power grids uh, is that we don't really know how to best dispatch all of these uh, distributed appliances, your Nest thermostats, your, you know, your batteries, et cetera, your electric vehicles in the best way so that we can accommodate the rise of intermittent renewable energy and operate the grid in a very efficient way and prevent the construction or defer the need for construction of expensive new centralized equipment like a substation. Solving that problem is going to require a whole lot of other things. It'll require the creation of a distribution energy market. It's going to require you know, centralized uh, utilities or other operators, system operators, to execute these really complex algorithms known as security-constrained economic dispatch algorithms. And for them to do all of this and like take a bunch of sensor data in from the distribution grid, run a bunch of algorithms, and then uh, spit out like what the optimal dispatch looks like, is going to require a whole range of digital solutions that actually may have very little to do with what blockchain actually allows you to do. So, so a sign of this is uh, in Australia, there's the Decentralized Energy Exchange Program where they're trying to implement some of this. You know, they, They've got a lot of batteries. Elon Musk has the biggest battery in the world in, in South Australia. And Australia is solving these really complicated technical challenges first and is deferring judgment on whether they're ultimately going to use a blockchain to record the transactions, because that's not the important part right now. The important part is all of these other digital pieces. Let me jump on that and just give one more example to what Varun was just saying. Not only is it not clear that blockchain has a role in, it, across the board in, these, in this decentralized, uh, more flexible grid of the future, it might, in fact, be at odds with some of the things we need that grid to do. So if you think about all the different... Um, uh, connected devices from Nest thermostats to smart water heaters to solar panels to storage systems to you know TVs etc. And you think about how many different data inputs are coming in at once. Um, you're going to need incredibly fast uh, uh, computational power, and in many cases, you're going to need a computational computational system which is coordinating rather than replicating. And what you get with a blockchain-based system is you get a ton of computational power dedicated to being duplicative rather than being coordinated. So to give you an example, just for a simple power sector function, like optimal power flow, um, there was, which obviously and any kind of distribution operator needs to needs to be performing at, at a you know almost instantaneous basis, repetitively, repetitively. There was a pilot project done um, just to test this out on a blockchain with very simple fifty sample nodes uh, operating in a system. So just imagine fifty different nodes in this in this network, um, and it took it took the blockchain based system three minutes just to perform a very simple, straightforward, traditional optimal power flow calculation for that system. Now, if you multiply that by, by 10, by 100, by 1,000, as we're going to have to do, in even a small-scale electricity market, that becomes uh, uh, an unacceptable delay in, in computing, not transactions, but in computing what's needed just to operate, find, uh, do price discovery, for example, at locational marginal price hubs, that sort of thing. 
So your process so far in looking at how both companies and policymakers are applying blockchain, I mean, is it on balance people trying to find a use for this new tool or people actually applying it appropriately to solve problems that they have? I mean, there's always that novelty problem with you know new technologies, but what have you found on balance? Absolutely. So, so, so let's give you some numbers because um, the, the Council on Foreign Relations paper that David I., Madison, and Max uh, wrote has the largest publicly available database of blockchain initiatives in the electric power sector. So just to give you some numbers, um, a majority, so I think 60% of all uh, initiatives in this sector uh, tried to work on electricity trading and fully 36% were working on peer-to-peer trading. So that's kind of working on a new application. Whereas we thought that the most realistic or feasible applications actually worked on kind of existing grid transactions like wholesale energy markets. Okay, so, so that's the majority of the, of the initiatives. 12% of initiatives we found worked on financing uh, for energy projects. This is, for example, using the blockchain to crowdsource small transactions, small uh, funding amounts for renewable energy projects. Another 11% was what David was talking about, sustainability attribution. Another 11% was for uh, financing or enable, facilitating the charging of electric vehicles. And there's a, finally a 6% long tail of niche applications like managing the assets in your smart home. So, you know, it, it, it seems to us that the bulk of the applications or the new initiatives of blockchain to the energy sector are, in fact, new applications. Uh, and, and there's a lot of excitement. You know, from March 2017 to March 2018, over $300 million were raised and 75% of that money was raised in an unconventional way known as an initial coin offering rather than traditional venture capital. All of this money you know, is going toward what look like exciting new markets. But in the near term, I don't want to speak for you, David, but, but I think we agree that the, the, the applications that are going to have the most traction are the ones that work in hand, uh, hand-to-hand uh, with incumbent utilities, for example, or incumbent energy corporations to help to, to manage the existing system and incrementally make it better rather than throwing it all away. And do we have evidence that those applications actually yield savings? I mean, are companies looking at it from that perspective now? Or are we still too early to be able to conclude that they definitely do that and we're still kind of perfecting? It's a great question. And I, and I think to, to be fair to those that are working on blockchain-based applications, there are those of us in, let's say, the, the, the policy community, the think tank community, that are quick to want to write papers about what is blockchain and does it have any promise in the electricity sector or not? Can we just poke a, poke a hole in that just balloon and deflate it? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and, and to be fair to them, that's like judging the, the promise of the internet back on the days when we had you know, clunky GeoCities pages and no one, wanted to, no one wanted to spend more than five minutes waiting for a page to download. And you would say, this internet thing, it has maybe a few uses, but it's all bunk in the end. It, it could be the same thing here in blockchain, in which um, you have a, a, a promising new architecture for storing data and for relating data to assets in the real world uh, and for, for allowing it to change hands, allowing that data to, to evolve, basically, um, as, as economic functions take place in, in, in the real economy. Um, it remains to be seen, of course, whether that potential will be fully harvested, but we should remember that we're in the very, very, very early days of that exploration. Um, secondly, I think that a lot of the, it's, it's fascinating because it's a question I asked in writing this paper of a lot of startups as well as some utilities uh, and, and, and some uh, uh, oil companies that, that were interviewed on, well, it sounds like you're doing pilot projects. What were the actual outcomes, material outcomes, things that, let's say, shareholders might care about? And 
I think they have those results, but I think those results are not yet public. So the 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 thing we're going to need to wait for uh, is is to see the sort of things like I was mentioning um, in that small scale pilot project, just to see if you could do optimal power flow calculations uh, using a, a simple fifty node model. Um, we need more concrete outcomes like that with specific metrics on okay, what does it cost to implement this system? What are the benefits and and the drawbacks? And uh, and and how realistic is it to to integrate this through our whole business? Now let me give you one which doesn't necessarily have cost savings, but could have other uh, uh, you know, potential benefits. And, and this is yet another one which is less rousing, but perhaps more realistic. Think about the way that utilities currently keep track of all their different assets, whether they be substations or power stations or um, you know, trucks, uh, whatever they are. Every utility has a bunch of different assets it needs to keep track of. Most of them have very proprietary systems for keeping track of all those different assets, which is fine. They don't want to disclose competitive information or proprietary data to, to others uh, uh, in the same sector competing against them. Um, uh, but when it comes to something like, let's say, the, the fires in California, something where utilities need to work hand-in-hand hand immediately on a very short time frame uh, to try and get power back, to try and restore critical functions to hospitals, uh, to certain industrial sites, etc., um, imagine a system in which using blockchain-based smart contracts, you could, uh, you could have the state even, it could be out of utilities' hands, but you could have some sort of state regulator be able to trigger some sort of event in which... All these smart contracts uh, are triggered, unlock themselves, and you have a temporary pre-specified level of data sharing about asset location, asset status amongst different utilities, and then amongst, let's say, local uh, law enforcement, fire, um, health services, et cetera, um, in a way that, that the state could control just during crisis periods. This kind of um, uh, 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 non-pecuniary benefit for the system should be considered as well as those that actually do you know, save money and time for, uh, for businesses. Just to be clear on, on some of the nomenclature you just used, um, a smart contract uh, is is you know a way of writing some programmable logic uh, such that if certain conditions are met, they'll automatically some transaction will automatically get executed on the blockchain. It could be a simple contract that's you know as simple as you know a shipping firm might set up a smart contract under which the customer will pay the firm in. Uh, tokens of a particular currency only after a package has been delivered. And to make this totally automatic, a data stream from a, D a GPS tracker on the package might trigger the smart contract to execute payment once the package reaches its destination. So, so this is a way in which smart contracts running on a blockchain eliminate the need for a central authority to enforce a contract. And there's this new cryptocurrency platform called Ethereum. Full disclosure, I am long ether and not doing very well. Uh, <laughs> that, that, that has enabled this, this smart contract functionality on which a lot of these energy blockchain smart contracts are built on this Ethereum platform. So I think that's a, important because I think it's a level of sophistication in what uh, the application for blockchain could be going forward. I've often wondered whether that could be a regulatory function, right? So if a certain energy system were to check a few boxes, they would get regulatory approval, which could circumvent sort of government uh, policymaking roles. But anyway, we'll just uh, leave that there for now. The, the one thing – so we've talked a lot about what blockchain can enable – and the potential for savings and the potential for efficiency. The flip side of this conversation is what it can enable in a more negative way, which are sort of the cybersecurity elements and the privacy elements. And those are two separate things. But they have kind of the same attributes, which is 
blockchain is one issue, digitalization and these new energy systems are the other. So what? how do you think about the challenges that are unique to blockchain as they relate to both cybersecurity and privacy? And we can start on either one. Absolutely. Let me just name three challenges that I think about all the time with this that have yet to be resolved. One is very intuitive. That's what we could call the physical digital interface. Go back to that example where we were taking data from a gas meter and putting it onto this immutable blockchain. Well, that's only as good as the readings you're getting from the meter. And if you don't trust the meter to tell you when it, you should invalidate the data that you're getting from it, because it seems to be a little miscalibrated, well, then you're just making, Im, uh, uh, you're just making permanent and immutable a bunch of bad data. It's basically trash in, trash out. Um, so that's one. We need to get the, uh, the physical digital interface done better. And this, by the way, is a significant role for policymakers to work on. We actually don't need so much standards for the blockchain industry per se. That's something that I think it's far too early to regulate or to impose standards on. That's something the industry itself, uh, innovators, startups working with incumbents should work to figure out for themselves. And there could be many different ones in the blockchain arena. But where we might need standards, um, and harmonization of standards is in that physical digital interface. So how are we actually going to consistently ensure that we're getting the same sort of readings from uh, smart meters attached to homes or from gas meters or for whatever it might be in the energy sector and translating that into the blockchain realm where then innovators can go and write as much code as they want to do magical things with that data. Um, that's number one. The second one has to do with uh, uh, your your concern about privacy. Um, this is a this is a very real concern. In some ways, uh, blockchain offers or blockchain based systems offer benefits uh, over traditional systems, which would have far more privacy concerns. For one, they they uh, pseudonymize or create pseudonyms uh, for all the all the assets, all the entities on the network. And so, instead of uh, me being David, I would just be. GKYXL1345. Um, and in a different transaction, I might be something completely different. Well, this is fine, except where it comes into, um, into collision with, uh, with some new regulations, such as those we're seeing in the European Union. Some of the listeners might be familiar with something called the General Data Protection Regulation, GDPR, which came into effect uh, in late May of this year, and which is um, some are holding up as kind of a new model, a new standard of data protection. Now, there are many that disagree with it, but, but it's, it's certainly starting conversations both within Europe as well as beyond in Asia and the U.S. Uh, as well over what should be the new form, the new model of data governance going forward. I'll just be brief and say, amongst other things that GDPR requires, it requires, uh, it, it, it further institutionalizes something that the EU had already been working on called the right to be forgotten. Now, that's the right to have all your data, you know, erased from a, a, a system or a company if you so wish. Well, can, can you really have all your data erased from a utilities uh, uh, a database of all of your electricity transactions or even, let's say, an electricity service provider, not a utility, just a startup that wants to do a few fancy things with your thermostat? And so you, you give it the right to, to record certain uh, uh, pieces of data about when you're home and when you turn up your thermostat and when you turn down your thermostat. Now, GDPR requires not only that um, you be uh, uh, that you be able to erase that data, which is not technically possible using an immutable blockchain-based system, uh, but it also requires you to completely anonymize that data, which is slightly different in in at least a technical legal sense than pseudonymizing the data. So a pseudonym is not true anonymization, and um, 
uh, not that many will take much joy in this, but this is uh, perhaps creating a, a field day for, for uh, lawyers in Brussels, in Washington, in London and beyond to try and figure out exactly how we're going to apply this GDPR to this to per, a, a potentially new blockchain-based energy future. The third one I'll mention just very briefly um, has to do not with privacy, but again, cybersecurity, let's say, and the integrity of the grid as a whole. Now, let's go back to this transactional grid uh, world, this future that we were painting. Um, and let's imagine that in order for this whole system to function, as it does today, um, you're going to have a decentralized system with no central authority. There will be no uh, transmission system op operator or grid operator. You're, you're going to have the, all, the nodes all figure this out in real time. Well, in order to do that, you need all the nodes to constantly be broadcasting and taking in the state of the grid at all times. This is how you do things like ensure that the lights stay on and make sure that prices are, are, are encouraging power to go where it's most needed um, or that we get negative prices when we have you know, too much and we don't want to have a, a, a surge coming on and, and, and breaking some part of the grid. Well, when you, when you broadcast the state of the grid to all nodes at all time, you, you start to run into problems where you don't want every single node, perhaps, on the edge of the grid to have information on voltage and some of these sensitive uh, uh, issues. Um, here's where there might be some workarounds in terms of which nodes you permission or allow to participate in the network. This is a whole different uh, road we won't go down today, but you don't necessarily have to allow everyone in. You, could, you can make a node, you know, have a little badge or prove that it's, uh, uh, it's authorized to, to be participating in this system. But it's going to require some quite savvy and sophisticated workarounds before or we start broadcasting the state of the grid to this uh, to this you know vast decentralized network of nodes. And and just to give some broader context here, I'll sound like a broken record, but again, uh, blockchain uh, is not the only digital innovation, um, and it's you know it, it's not the the biggest security vulnerability uh, facing utilities, and it's also not a silver bullet thanks to its immutability and those characteristics. Uh, electric sector power utilities are going to have to implement a range of cybersecurity defenses. Lots of common sense stuff in order to protect uh, the grid against uh, intrusions by, for example, foreign entities, as well as uh, intrusions from permissioned insiders. And the National Renewable Energy Laboratory has laid out a, you know, a series of uh, reasonable common sense guidelines for utilities to beef up their cybersecurity protocols. So again, blockchain uh, is, is, is one potential source of vulnerability and also a potential uh, source of security. But there's a whole broader context of what utilities need to do to beef up cybersecurity. Yeah. And that's a longstanding issue for the entire industry. Mm -hmm. So, okay, I'm going to ask you, you just said it's too early in the evolution of this technology to declare it a winner or a giant failure. Uh, but I'm going to ask you just to think about the next 10 years. Where do you think blockchain has the biggest potential? And what are the things that you're looking for along the way from here to there to determine its path? In the in the most optimistic future, I want to go back to David's uh, reference to geocities and the internet, right? In the most optimistic future, blockchain, um, you know, starts to, to, to just look kind of like the furniture or the base level infrastructure of some of these systems, like the electric power grid. You know, one of the quotes I really like is from a promising startup that David and I interviewed. Um, it's by the co-founder of Electron, Joanna Hubbard, who said, in 15 years, so not your 10-year horizon, Sarah, but in 15 years, we won't be talking about blockchain anymore. We'll be using it without realizing it. In that vision, the optimistic vision of the future, you know, blockchain helps to underpin one of the fundamental things that happens in these systems, which is recording transactions or recording assets. And it's one of this 
you know, the, the landscape of many other digital innovations. Um, it, it may not, especially in 10 years, become as influential as the internet, as some of the blockchain enthusiasts uh, have suggested. Um, but it may, be, may become one integral part uh, that provides one set of functionality that's super important, this recording of transactions. And I'll go out on a limb and say, um, of the potential applications that I've seen in the next 10 years, I'm fairly optimistic about the uh, prospects of blockchain-based systems or distributed ledger technologies helping to improve the way that we do this sustainability uh, attribute tracking, for example. Um, let's just look at you know um, renewable energy credits in uh, for that 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 are the the credits that. Um, uh, qualify within renewable portfolio standard markets. The way we kind of currently design all these different attribute markets is w we treat the energy commodity like a motorcycle. And then we keep adding sidecars onto that motorcycle, which are entirely different, completely policy-created markets that sit alongside it, hive off the attribute, um, and allow that attribute to be traded in very clunky, very difficult to use, very Byzantine and arbitrary kind of market infrastructures. There's essentially one or two software providers for the 13 or 14 balkanized different uh, uh, renewable energy credit markets in the United States. There's not much fungibility between those markets. There's a long lag time between, let's say, the the unit, uh, the, the kilowatt hour of solar electricity being generated and the availability of that credit to be validated and proved and then be available for trading. And in any case, the market in which the energy commodity is traded is com works completely differently than the market in which the attribute is traded. In a blockchain-based future, I could imagine us uh, implementing um, some processes and some architectures and infrastructures that will allow for the sidecar to become the motorcycle, to just have a bigger motorcycle instead of a motorcycle with all these sidecars attached. You could imagine in which uh, the moment that this, uh, this unit of electricity or this unit of natural gas is created, you've got all sorts of different attributes that are, that are generated, data which is basically available, for policymakers to do as they please. Um, this will be much more efficient, particularly as we start moving towards um, uh, uh, markets that look less like renewable energy credit markets or renewable portfolio standard markets and move a little bit more towards markets which are aimed at the thing we really care about, let's say a low carbon future, whatever the, uh, the energy commodity might be. Guys, this has been really helpful. I think that uh, anyone who's been around in the last two years or so understand that blockchain is a very hot topic, but it's also a really underappreciated one, and for good reason, right? It's still being applied in different ways, and it's still evolving, And as is our understanding of it. So I just want to say thanks very much for your paper. We'll commend it to uh, all of our listeners, put it on the website, and uh, encourage people to do their homework, learn what a blockchain is, figure out how it gets applied. And uh, we just want to thank Thank you guys for contributing uh, a really useful guide and, and outlook uh, for the technology. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks, Sarah, for having us. I tell a blockchain joke here to, to, to end the whole podcast. You but absolutely have to do that. <laughs> the, the, problem with blockchain, the problem with blockchain jokes, Sarah, is it can take up to 10 minutes to validate that you're actually at the punchline. <laughs> oh my God. Thanks for having us. Okay. Again, I'm Sarah Ladislav, CSIS Energy and National Security Program, and thanks for listening to Energy 360. <laughs>